Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So the musical world of early 1968 was a world dominated by sounds of psychedelia, and its associated innovations. Even set outside of the rock music world, psychedelic music sounds were taking hold. Jazz groups were beginning to embrace the volume and effects pedals of psychedelic music. And even the newly emergent genre of funk was starting to mix psychedelic music in into it, jamming effects pedals, Eastern sounds, even though funk was all about rhythm and very, very different from psychedelia. And that started really, really soon with like Sly and the Family Stone. I don't remember what record they did that on, but like we're talking about like this time of year, like 67 or 68 or something like that. And it would take until April for the birds, the the pioneers of psychedelia, as we talked about a little while ago, the the people who who made Eight Miles High and got on the radio before anyone else was able to get psychedelic music on the radio. It would take them until April to give up on it, and it would take them until August to release their definitive anti-psychedelic work sweetheart of the rodeo which is if you don't know what most people consider the first country rock album but is really like the second country rock album or even the third but the first one that anyone listened to because the first one one of the first ones was made by a band called the international submarine band that no one's ever heard of so i'm say all that because of course it was in this environment that the beatles released their spring 1968 single which sounds like this lady madonna As of course, Lady Madonna, and it is very much, except for maybe the backing vocals that pretend to be horns at one point, not psychedelic in the slightest. You could argue it sounds nothing like the Beatles had recorded over the last year and a bit. It was, some people have credited it to being inspired by Fats Domino, an early rock and roll musician. It has a, a horn section and a saxophone solo. Um, Paul McCartney shows off his full vocal ability and uh, like his full range. It lacks the complexity of uh, their previous singles or B-sides, and certainly of the last previous year and a half. It is relatively straight-up rock and roll, though arguably has somewhat better lyrics than some rock and roll, and utterly foreign to the musical charts of March 1968 when it came out. But it was a hit because it was the Beatles. And yes, as I mentioned earlier, the only really psychedelic aspect of it is the vocalizing of brass instruments back the saxophone solo so instead of actually there are horns but during the saxophone solo instead of uh horns playing the beatles like use their voices to pretend to be horns so that's i guess vaguely psychedelic but everything else about it is not psychedelic and this is march 1968 the first psychedelic single was february 1966 it's been less than well it's been slightly more than two years and the beatles of course didn't put out any psychedelic music until may 1966 so for them, it's been even less. Now, the B-side is not that at all. The B-side is much more of a piece with psychedelic music. It is George Harrison's third and arguably most successful foray into Indian music. It is called The Inner Light. The Indian parts were arranged and produced by Harrison while they were in India, or while he was back in India, I think, actually. And it was made before Lady Madonna, and some other songs were recorded during uh, the Lady Madonna session. And it was actually during the uh, recordings for the first ever Beatles solo album, Wonderwall Music, which I have actually never heard, weirdly. 
of course, John Lennon would release his first solo album a week after the next Beatles album came out. More on that later. And Paul McCartney had barely been involved in what some believe, and I mentioned earlier, was sort of the first official Beatles solo album, but was really a George Martin movie soundtrack back in 1966. Anyway, the lyrics to the inner light are taken from a religious text, and the music is Indian, so therefore, in the Western eyes, psychedelic. But, of course, nobody listened to that. They listened to Lady Madonna. Unlike the previous song singles, this was not a double A-side. This was an A-side. <laughs> you know, uh, Lady Madonna was the hit. I don't think many people have heard the inner light, um, unless you're you know, a Beatles fanatic. So I just want to stop and consider how out there Lady Madonna was as a single in March 1968. Magical Mystery Tour had come out in December, so four months earlier, and the Beatles were still very much the psychedelic band in Britain, if not the entire world. They were arguably still wrapped up in psychedelic excess. If you can go by what we talked about when we talked about flying, that was, you know, was flying on Magical Mystery Tour was whittled down to two and a half minutes or two minutes, but like it was this long, elaborate music concrete piece, concrete piece before it was whittled down. Um, even when Paul McCartney was writing old-timey music, even that music was couched in psychedelic production and arrangements. There was literally nothing like to warn us about the fact that they would just go out and make straight-ahead piano rock and roll. It fits in much better with the soul songs dominating the U.S. charts in March 6, 1968 than it does with the rock music of the same month. Um, and if you go to the U.K. charts, it's even more of an anomaly because they were listening to just basically only psychedelic pop and rock. Now, a couple of other songs both written by John Lennon, were recorded during the Lady Madonna sessions. And at least Hey Bulldog represents John Lennon going in a similar direction to Lady Madonna. We will talk about Hey Bulldog later. It is also a piano-driven rock song. Um, there are psychedelic touches in the recording, but it's generally a straight-ahead rock song. There's barking, uh, vocal barking. Apparently, the, the Beatles were really into vocal noises at this point. However, the other song he wrote at this point is Across the Universe, and that, of course is much more of a psychedelic song than either Lady Madonna or Hey Bulldog. But it's there are so many versions of Across the Universe, it's kind of hard to keep track of which is the earliest, but it certainly is much more of a psychedelic song. We are going to talk about Across the Universe later, of course, because it's one of their most famous songs now. And then the Beatles went to India, and they wrote a whole bunch of songs that they would release over the coming years. One of the distinguishing features of these songs would be how they did not sound psychedelic in any way. So let's fast forward to August of 1968, when the Beatles released their next song, which was also not remotely psychedelic, and is arguably, it was their biggest hit ever at the time, and is one of their most famous songs to date. Well, ever. Hey Jude, the most successful Beatles single at the time, internationally anyway, and uh, possibly their most famous song ever. You could say it's a showcase for Paul McCartney singing, and I guess maybe it's piano playing, especially in the four-minute coda, where they repeat the phrase 18 times uh, on a single, which is like insane. I guess it was the longest Beatles song to date. It was the longest number one song in UK history until Oasis beat it with something i don't know know the name of the oasis song because i hate oasis it's one of the most successful singles of all time but it also like lady madonna it was nothing to psychedelia and represents return both of those songs represent return to a more straight ahead sound albeit a partial 
return because, of course, there's an orchestra in this and there is a group of people singing along in the four minute coda. It's not like it's not an elaborate production in some ways, but it is not remotely psychedelic sounding. I do think that anyone who, not that anyone ever doubts Paul McCartney's ability to sing, but if you ever do doubt his ability to sing, you should listen to his various vocal acrobatics in the coda because he does a lot of them. Perhaps too much. It depends on your point of view. Now, the other side of that single is something quite different. That is Revolution, one of the three versions that were released of the John Lennon song Revolution. And it owes nothing, of course, to Psychedelia either. It is also far and away the loudest song the Beatles have ever recorded today, as you could tell by that like overloaded guitar that starts it. It is the closest thing to lo-fi, I think you could say, certainly in terms of the guitar the band ever recorded. And it is the best pre-white album indicator that the band had moved on from Psychedelia. This is, as I mentioned before, there are three versions. This is uh, the second version of Revolution, faster than Revolution number one which was recorded faster at the behest of Paul McCartney. And once again, whatever feelings I might have about Paul McCartney's silly lyrics all the time and sort of his willingness to toss off silly songs, I, I think it's worth pointing out McCartney's great sense of taste as an arranger, a guitar player, though he doesn't play lead guitar on this. And, and generally, like especially when thinking about other people's songs when he was willing to, his just incredible musical insight it was his idea to make this song faster. It, Revolution number one, which is on the White Album, is a very different beast. It's mostly, it's partially acoustic and it's way, way slower. And this was not Paul McCartney's baby, but it came in and he was like, hey, let's do something different. The guitars are extremely fuzzy, as you heard, and they were recre- created without use of amps. They plugged them directly into the mixing board and they overloaded the system and essentially, you know, gave it like almost a garage rock sound. And this is just goes to show you that even though they had moved on from the psychedelic stuff, they were still doing really strange things. It also features the first appearance of a name rock session musician, as opposed to a name classical session musician, in the legendary Nicky Hopkins. If you know anything about classic rock in the UK, you've heard of Nicky Hopkins. He was currently in the Jeff Beck group. He has also played on Stones Records, on Who Records, and many, many, many other records. He's a piano player. It is also notably very political but political in a different way than you might think if you actually listen to the words. And if you compare it to, say, John Lennon's Imagine, which came out later, it is particularly more like almost not nihilistic, but apathetic than Imagine. And that's an interesting stance, especially given where John Lennon would go very soon, lyrically. Some people thought it was anti-hippie at the time, but it's, I think it's more safe to say it's, it's anti-violence. Uh, it might, you could say it's anti-protest. But it's definitely anti-violence. Anyway, I also just, this is just a personal pet peeve, but there are people who don't listen to the Beatles who will tell you the Beatles were a pop band. And I would like any of those people to listen to Revolution and tell me the Beatles are a pop band because that is the sound, especially for summer 1968, the dawn, not, I'm not saying this is, it's not metal, not remotely metal. It's much closer to garage rock, but the, the very dawn of heavy metal and they were making some of the loudest re- rock music in the world, at least in the case of this song and a few others that we're going to talk about in a minute. And this is just a, a you know bugbear of mine that people bring this up sometimes. And I, I always feel like there's like a select 
you know, this would be on my list of like the 10 or so really loud Beatles rock songs that I would play for somebody who was saying that because it's, you know, it's not the sound of a pop band. Anyway, the single is also notable for using a music video to boost its popularity. The Beatles had already done this with All You Need Is Love because they filmed the recording and it was broadcast around the world. And they did it with Magical Mystery Tour, but only because they made a movie around Magical Mystery Tour for TV. They made a TV movie. This is the first time they made a standalone video solely for the purpose of making a video. They were not the first band to do this by any means. The, Beatles, uh, the Beach Boys had actually made a video for Good Vibrations, but it's worth noting that the Beatles had finally joined. And you could also argue that the, the Beatles' first two movies helped pioneer music videos, right? And those came out in uh, 60. I want to say 63 and 64 off the top of my head, 64 and 65, sorry. But anyway, so this is a bit of a landmark single, very, very different than the big hits of the previous year. And uh, also uh, very, very, even more clear, whereas Lady Madonna was one more traditional rock and roll song and like Indian music, this is just very much like Psychedelia is over, right? It's a loud garage rock song on the B side and the A side is a big, it's a ballad, but it's a ballad that, goes on forever and uh and just doesn't have aside from the orchestra doesn't have a lot of rock instruments on it and so that brings us to what is in some ways uh the mother of all beatles albums the the big one and that is the one that's popularly known as the white album is actually called the beatles and that came out in november 1968 unlike every previous beatles album this album was partially produced by someone named chris thomas and that was because george martin took his vacation in the middle of the recording because he was mad at the way the Beatles were behaving to each other. And Jeff Emmerich, the Beatles engineer I've mentioned the most so far, was involved up until July 18th during the recording sessions and also left partway through because the Beatles were behaving so poorly to each other. So I just wanted to mention that because it, you know, is fairly relevant for what would happen in the future and also just with this record. I think the first thing that's very notable about the White Album is why it's called the White Album. It is, if you've never seen it, which I have a hard time believing, it is a, a white, just white with the Beatles in a corner. And this is a band that had been helping to um, move everyone into the world of elaborate cover art. You know, the Beatles had uh, their most elaborate covers, arguably, arguably Sgt. Pepper, but they'd had increasingly elaborate covers and they weren't the only band. It'd become very, very common to have elaborate covers, and especially in 1967, it had been common to have psychedelic covers, all sorts of wow colors, you know, lots of different colors and like really bold stuff. And then they went out and very deliberately put out something that was just white to stand out both in terms of the way it looked, but also I think very consciously to signal that psychedelia was over. You know, it's a it's a symbolic gesture, but I think it's it's you know, an effective one. I think, you know, it, it was the first solid color. You know, now we have the Black Album and there's the multiple Black Albums from different genres. And then there's also the infamous Grey Album, which mixed up the White Album with a Black Album. And there's, of course, many other color albums now. But like, this is the first one that did this. The Birds had released Sweetheart of the Rodeo in August, the same time that Hey Jude came out. But almost everyone else was still committed to psychedelic music. The Beach Boys were still releasing psychedelic pop records and would continue to do so. Cream, uh, who were still together, were extremely psychedelic. The Doors were making music that a lot of people describe as psychedelic. I don't personally, but like 
they're making music that we would now classify as psychedelic music. The Grateful Dead had just released a definitive psychedelic record. Jimi Hendrix had just released his magnum opus, which was very much psychedelic music. Pink Floyd had begun to move towards prog rock, but were still recording psychedelic songs. And notably, also, no one knew what prog rock was yet. It didn't exist. The Small Faces, who are a band that's sort of been forgotten, but in Britain were a really big deal, uh, had just released their psychedelic record in the spring. And even the Rolling Stones, who were briefly into psychedelia, were still recording uh, psychedelic music and actually included the tambura, one of the Indian instruments George Harrison learned how to play, on their first post-psychedelic record, Beggar's Banquet. There's actually a tambura on one of the songs, so they hadn't quite moved out there. Um, only the Kinks and the Who of the Brit- major British groups who had never taken on the psychedelia were not making psychedelic music in the autumn of 1968. And if you go to the States, it's similar. Aside from maybe like the Motown artists, you know, psychedelia was everywhere and infiltrated itself, you know, to all, all sorts of, co- including, as I said earlier, into genres that wouldn't necessarily associate with psychedelia, like funk and also into jazz. So the cover was a shock. It was a single, a signal. And uh, the Beatles were the biggest and most important band in the world. And they were essentially just saying the music we've made for the last year and a half is over. And I, I feel like we probably don't really have a hard time understanding the impact of that. You know, it, it's hard to say who the biggest band in the world is anymore. First of all, because there aren't huge bands really anymore. It's mostly solo artists, I feel like. But also, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's so many. Um, we're sort of in a post-genre world right now. It's it's a lot harder thing to figure out. And also, you know, everyone sort of likes, is off in their own little thing. And people would have also thought, in addition to them being the biggest band in the world, that they were the most innovative band in the world because most people had never heard of the Velvet Underground or Frank Zappa. And, you know, they essentially, this album is essentially saying that the music that's been dominating the charts for the last two years is over. You should move on. Obviously, not everybody did. Psychedelic music was still being made into the early 70s. But a lot of people did take it as a signal. By the end of the decade, none of the originators of psychedelic music would be making it anymore. And the ones who are still making psychedelic music are the people who sort of came along a little bit after. The recording process for this album was both the longest and most fractured of any Beatles album to date, which is why I mentioned that both George Martin and Jeff Emmerich semi-quit on them. Beatles often couldn't work together because of personal and creative differences. It's notable that George Harrison's solo album had come out right before this album. And also, Ringo Starr briefly quit. He was the first of the Beatles to temporarily quit, and he wouldn't be the last. There would be multiple temporary uh, quit people leaving, whatever you want to call it, going forward until the actual official breakup. As I said, George Martin went on a deliberate vacation, which caused Chris Thomas to actually be a producer for a few songs. And as I mentioned before, Jeff Emmerich quit during the sessions as a protest as well, though he would be back. Later, during the sessions, both Harrison and Lennon also temporarily quit. The star was first, so good for him, I guess. It is the most fractured and least consistent album they recorded since before Rubber Soul. I personally don't think that is a criticism. The White Album was like nothing else ever recorded up to that point. People had released double albums before. Johnny Cash put out a few double albums in the early uh, 60s, uh, sort of doing stories, linked to uh, country songs linked together to create a story, but Notably, Bob Dylan and Frank Zappa had released the first ever rock double albums in May or June 1966, but both albums were essentially just larger statements, especially Bob Dylan's. He didn't try to do everything. He, he did, like, you could argue, three or four genre, genres tops. Cream had released the double album Wheels of Fire earlier in 1968 before they actually broke up, but it was actually a half-studio, half-live album 
and it doesn't really fit this mold. Hendrix's Electric Ladyland came out before this, and you could say it was a little, maybe a little closer to this because it inhabited a larger musical landscape than these other double albums, you could argue. But it was still very much psychedelic blues rock on the whole. The White Album is not that at all. It is an album much like Revolver in the genre and style change song to song and occasionally within the songs. It's arguable that never before in rock music history had a band tried to play every single style they could come up with on one album. And I'd argue that this set the standard for a practice that has happened occasionally. The Clash, for example, are notable for trying it with both London Calling and then Sandinista is actually a triple album. Husker yes. Du did it with Zen Arcade. You could argue that Guns N' Roses sort of tried to do it with Use Your Illusion, but I'd argue it's, that's a little closer to maybe they're a little more limited in that. Them and uh, Smashing Pumpkins with Melancholy and Infinite Sadness, I'd say, are a little closer to like what Bob Dylan was doing with Blonde and Blonde and, or the Rolling Stones did with Exile on Main Street. Other notable double albums are uh, Manassas and Being There. These are much less ambitious than uh, the White Album or London Calling or Zen Arcade, I would say. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you think that it became, after the Beatles did it, do you think it became a rite of passage for a yes. certain yes. style of band to 100%. try and make this ridiculous double album a thing? Yeah. I think that like it's sort of the idea of the kitchen showing off everything we can do. Saying like, here we are, we can do we're really we can do whatever we want. I, and when I think of like London Calling or San, especially San Denisa, for example, like as much as the clash like deliberately parodied, you know, London Calling, the title track of London Calling is actually like is in many ways a parody of psychedelia. They, they actually like have uh, vocal noises in London Calling that recall a Pink Floyd song. Well, didn't Joe Strummer start off in psychedelia and then just couldn't? It's possible. Yeah, I don't because his when he started doing music in his vag when we call it his vagabond days. Uh, I can't remember what he tried before uh, the founding of the Clash and the punk that he got into, but it might have been psychedelic. Okay, but yeah, like, start the boss. I'm a little bit rusty on that, so don't like full quote me on that i have yeah. to actually go back and look that up Don't but i feel you. like that's probably true yeah i mean i have no idea i don't know what i don't remember what he did before the clash but i would say that like especially once the clash did it with london calling i think it did become a bit of a like you know i'm i'm my list of double albums there is hardly complete because there's also single albums where rock bands have tried to you know do many styles right yeah and i think the white album sort of showed this is the extent of popular music in 1968 and it also sort of said and look at us we can play all of it and and that is appealing to i think certain types of musicians to say like we want to be a, that kind of band that like we don't do a genre or two genres we do, we do you know all. we do them all and i think the clash might not have reacted well to someone suggesting they were trying to do the white album with especially Sandinista, but like, it sure sounds like it to me when I'm listening to it. But yeah, I think that's a, that's absolutely what was going on. And I think also um, one of the things that the white album showed is that like, especially because it was commercially successful and critically successful, you couldn't necessarily criticize a band for reaching into things that were outside of their, uh, their purview anymore. I mean, you could, if they did it poorly, I guess, but the idea was, yeah. Instead of objecting to, you know, you could object to maybe the quality of the songs now, but you couldn't necessarily object to like, 
you know, if like a rock band suddenly like put out, I don't know, like a jazz record or something like it sort of opened up, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, I, I, I've, I, I say this somewhere in the book, but basically like, it's a little bit like um, reading Nietzsche, you know, like once you read Nietzsche in philosophy, you know, you sort of realize that like, like the intellectual world opens up a lot more and anything is possible. That doesn't make anything, everything good. It just means anything is possible. And I think the same thing a little bit, especially with this Beatles record, it's just like, once you hear this, it's like, oh, I don't just have to play rock and roll. I can play whatever, you know, because there's all these other mm-hmm. things. The other thing it, it did too, is it introduced the idea of filler as a, as a device. You know, you, there's, there are some songs on the White Album that do not stand, stand up well on their own for sure i mean there's 30 songs that for sure yeah yeah but i forgot how long it was yeah 30 songs they are but they are used in many ways they are like there's there's actually just just like on sergeant pepper there's often no pause between the proper song before it and the filler and it's very much used as a device to keep things moving and that has become a cliche i think in 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 popular music but like you know, it really wasn't before this. And like, you can criticize a bunch of these songs for being underwritten and underdeveloped, but like the way the presentation was more about this, the whole thing, flow, you know, listening to this hour and like 25 or whatever it is, minutes, or 30, yeah. whatever it is. And just like moving from one thing to the next to the next and just the onslaught of different stuff, you know? And, and yeah, so, I mean, you may be able to tell I'm fond of it. It is far and away my favorite Beatles album. I definitely think you could argue that Revolver and Abbey Road are superior records. I think that's, and, and probably Rubber Soul as well. But for me personally, it's, it's my favorite. It's the one that introduced me to the rest of the musical world back when I only listened to oldies. It's the reason I listened to a very wide variety of music is this record. Would you say that that maybe that, setting that standard of making it okay to push yourself outside of your genre or, and maybe not outside your genre, but to all genre or sort of wide reaching, whatever you want to call it. Would you maybe say that that might've been the great, the Beatles greatest contribution to the pop sphere? Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways it is. I mean, I think you can, you know, you can look at, cause it, cause if you look at like Sergeant Pepper, the contribution is in many ways on the production side. Right. And not everyone gets that far, you know? Um, and, and, you know, yes, please, please me caused tons of people to form bands. You know, I think it's undoubted has a huge amount of influence on both British people and American uh, and Canadian musicians who heard it or heard in the case of the U S and Canada heard versions of it. And were like, Oh my God, you know, this is something new and I'm interested in it. But I think, the variety of the Beatles music at this point, yes, might be their biggest legacy because it is really saying, you know, not only can you, can anyone just like do this, but like they can do really anything. We're, we're touching on most of what is known in the musical world in 1968. So, and we, we can do it. Why not you? Now they of course were the most famous people in the world at the time. So it probably didn't always get across to everybody. Cause of course, some people would say, well, the Beatles can do it, but I'm not the Beatles. But I do think it's a little bit like, you know, that, that Brian, the, the cliche attributed to Brian Eno about uh, the Velvet Underground is like they sold no records, but everyone bought a record for him to band. 
I do think that if you had any kind of musical interest in 1968 and you were a budding musician and you heard this record, you probably found something in there where you're like, oh, oh, okay. They're doing mm-hmm. that. So yeah, I think I think that's a safe thing to say that it's possibly their most enduring legacy. That like it opened up the world to everybody, you know. So the record opens with back in the USSR. A Paul McCartney song, which is one of the first couple songs on the record that notably do not feature Ringo Starr on drums because Ringo Starr was off protesting everyone's behavior. And so, of course, it features Paul McCartney on drums. And infamously, supposedly, John Lennon said Ringo Starr wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. It was Paul McCartney. And I just like to mention at this point that I have been trying to do a deep dive on that. And as far as I know, that is apocryphal. He never actually said it. It just sounds like something he would say because he was a jackass. And uh, it's really funny, too, right? So, like, it's very John Lennon, right? Mean and funny at the same time. Anyway. Paul McCartney had been starting to write these songs that were either tributes or parodies to his various musical heroes. In this case, it's the Beach Boys with Back in the USA, though they had, of course, ripped that off from Chuck Berry. And uh, to me, this is one of his most effective, if not his most effective parody of another artist. It features some of Paul McCartney's finest uh, lead guitar playing on a Beatles song. And so I think that, and, and in general, it's a exciting and interesting introduction to the album it starts of course with the plane uh landing and uh it's it's just like really really like almost cruel in how it captures the inanity of the early beach boys lyrics by just shifting them to uh stuff about like being in love with very girls in various parts of the ussr and wanting to like sleep with them on your tour it also is notable for having three bass parts, even uh, played by John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison. It's the only Beatles song that I'm aware of to have three bass guitars on it, which is weird because I, I certainly can't hear it in the mix. It is, of course, straight ahead American rock and roll, and so very, very far away from anything on Sgt. Pepper or Magical Mystery Tour. It segues into Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Won't you come out to play? By way of the closing sample of an airplane takeoff or a landing, I'm not sure if the, I guess probably it's supposed to land at the beginning of the song and take off at the end. If I think about that, that seems reasonable. This is one of the most straightforward songs John Lennon had come up with recently, certainly compared to something like I'm the Walrus. It was supposedly written for Mia Farrow's sister, which is a weird piece of celebrity uh, minutia. Though it's straightforward, it's one of the strongest songs on the album. And according to Alan Pollock, the musicologist I've talked about many times and quoted many times in this podcast, it's apparently John Lennon taking note of George Harrison's method of songwriting. Alan Pollock feels like it's much closer to the kind of chord progression George Harrison would write than John Lennon. Also, it's notable for featuring Paul McCartney as a one-man band. The song has all sorts of great dynamics in it. And the credits of the song are literally mostly Paul McCartney, uh, even though it's a John Lennon song, which is interesting. But again, as I said about uh, Revolution, it's once again showing that Paul McCartney, if when he wanted to, could really like devote himself to someone else's song and, and do a great job. It also has a pretty great string arrangement. So Lennon plays acoustic guitar, sings lead vocals, and maybe a backing vocal. Uh, George Harrison plays electric guitar and... Uh, sings backing vocals and claps some hands. And McCartney plays drums, bass, piano, 
flugelhorn, tambourine, cowbell, and claps his hands. So he just basically like fleshed out the recording. The next track is another John Lennon song. It is called Glass Onion, and it is a song about the Beatles' cult. Again, <laughs> but much more explicitly than I'm the walrus, it is, whereas I'm the walrus just mixed up words to try and fuck with people. Uh, this is actually like claiming that he has written various Beatles songs as part of uh, an attempt to put deeper meaning in, and it's a complete joke. So he references I'm the walrus, he references Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds, Lady Madonna, and there was one other track that I can't remember right now. It is, you could argue, an outright attack on the fans who were trying to read too much into their lyrics, specifically the people who kept saying Paul was actually dead. It features, as I mistakenly said about Dear Prudence, it's a, it features an excellent string arrangement by George Martin, and it is, Alan Pollock notes, it is in the style of a talking blues. However, of course, it has a string arrangement, so that is not what you would expect. The next track is one of those tracks on the album that has not aged very well, particularly given the color of Paul McCartney's skin and where he's from. Also, I think it was a name to begin with, but it's it's a little more problematic now, and that is Obladi Oblada. You could argue a silly little love song, but it is the first truly non-rock song on this album. It was heavily influenced by a uh, first wave ska, by the early, early sounds of reggae, and by uh, a genre called highlight, which I have never actually listened to, which is oh. African. All of these things had made their way into Britain in the 60s, and as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, I Call Your Name from like 1964 had a subtle Jamaican influence. This is much more obvious Jamaican influence it's hardly authentic you could argue actually there's you could actually listen on anthology to an earlier version of the song which is much more reggae-ish than this one or much more scottish they sort of made it a little less indebted to it in the final version but it does show off the band's style of diversity it was recorded by somebody else and became a number one hit in the uk because john lennon and george harrison would not let paul mccartney release it as a Beatles single because they hated it. And honestly, I'm kind of on their side. I think it's one of his dumbest songs. And like I said, it's kind of it's kind of dated poorly given how, you know. Now, in his defense, there was a, a period in the 70s where a bunch of white people were playing reggae. So and all, and then again in the 90s in the States. So it's not and, like and still now. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, um, do we have to ring us bring up Mattis Yahoo? I don't actually know who that is. Mattis Yahoo, when was he been his biggest, like mid 2000s or so, maybe 2010? Um, He was a like fairly hardcore Hasidic Jew who um, like threw down some really good classic reggae. Okay. Just roll that around in your head for a while and it's awesome. So the next track is uh, Wild Honey Pie, the first arguably piece of filler. It is a Paul McCartney track, both written by him and performed entirely by him, and called Wild Honey Pie for no particular reason. There's another song on the 
album called Honey Pie, and this has nothing to do with it. I think honestly, he might have just like sung sung the words and named it this in order to be confusing. It is the first song in the album that shows the fractures of the band. Nothing on the sleeve of the album indicated that Ring of Star was not present for the first two songs, but listening to this, you don't actually hear. I mean, you might hear a whole band because there's the odd instrument, but like it doesn't really sound like the work of a band. There, of course, will be more and more album, uh, songs like this on the album as we go. I think if you just listen to Wild Honey Pie by itself and it's just McCartney vamping over some guitars, there's some drums. Supposedly, there's a harp scored on it, though I'm not sure I can hear it. You know, it's, it's kind of a throwaway. But of course, this is the first of these many pieces they would put in that act almost like a bridge between songs. And, and I got to say, especially if you listen to like the indie rock, there's a bunch of, uh, you know, indie rock artists in the 90s who, who would essentially record all the music themselves. And there was, this just became so common a device, uh, just a, like a little bit of a song, you know, or even uh, Badly Drawn Boy, right? There's somebody who does that. These segues are now a feature of a lot of, uh, you know, pop and rock music. And, this is the first one, basically, ever, which is interesting. But yeah, by itself, it's kind of like, who cares? The next track is The Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill, written by John Lennon. The children asked him if to kill was not a sin. He looked so His mommy butted him. If looks could kill, it would have been. Seemingly, it's a children's song, and you could argue that a bunch of songs on this record are children's songs, but it's actually an attack on a hunter in India who had killed a tiger. It features a chorus performed by the whole band and two of their significant others, which marks the only time I believe that happened. Certainly is the only time that a non-Beatle had a lead vocal, where very briefly, Yoko Ono sings the line of the mother. That is, I think, the only time, basically. And now they'd done a gang vocal before on Yellow Submarine, but this is, you know, this is their second or, well, second uh, chorus gang vocal in the main part of the song. Of course, they did do the gang vocals at the end of All You Need Is Love and also the end of Hey Jude. The impressive sounding flamenco guitar that opens the song is actually a Mellotron, which has always disappointed me for some reason. I don't know why. It always sounds so damn impressive. And I, uh, I, when I was young, I thought it was George Harrison. And it turns out it was Chris Thomas on the Mellotron. <laughs> uh, I didn't know there was a guitar setting on the Mellotron, but apparently there is. Usually, Mellotrons are used for strings and brass and winds and even vocals. And that segues into the next track, which was for a very long time, my favorite Beatles song, It No Longer Is. And that is While My Guitar Gently Weeps, George Harrison's first contribution to this album. Notably features Eric Clapton, who was not credited on the sleeve, playing what is arguably the most famous guest appearance on a Beatles song, because he plays lyric guitar on it. It is, uh, you could argue, the best guitar playing on a Beatles song in some ways, or among the best. You could also argue that this is George Harrison's best song to date, just in terms of its musical sophistication. Its lyrics are not amazing, but like it certainly has resonated um, with a lot of people. It's sort of become one of their 
more well-known songs and certainly one of George Harrison's more well-known Beatles songs. But it was actually done as a writing exercise. He just tried to write about the first thing he saw and it just happened to be his guitar. And so that's maybe why the lyrics are a little inane, but it does feature, you know, extended excellent guitar performance by Eric Clapton. Now, the next track is one of my favorite Beatles songs ever. In my that and it is uh, happiness is a warm gun by john lennon it is a suite and it mixes fragments of a bunch of different songs together covering some rock and roll subgenres, including doo-wop and uh it, the lyrics are inspired by all sorts of weird things such as just looking at ads in magazines and doing acid because uh, that's what he was up to at the time for me it is one of the highlights of the album it is in a bunch of different time signatures and is one of the rare whole band performances on the record and they actually uh i believe it's it's if i'm not mistaken most of it is it's mostly overdub free there might be only one or two overdubs the beals play in separate times in one part in the doo section it is a really really impressive uh display of uh their abilities, musical abilities, and also is mostly free of production tricks, unlike most of the things on this record, and certainly everything of the last couple of years, which is one of the reasons I like it so much. I think it's just like it it shows that, you know, they, they had become very production heavy and it shows they're still a very capable band. And then they go from having a complete band performance to uh, Paul McCartney, one-man band track again, Martha My Dear. Uh, where McCartney plays all the rock instruments on the song, and then he's accompanied by a, a horn and string section. It is one of Paul McCartney's explorations of pre-rock and roll British music. This was becoming more and more common. It started, of course, on Sgt. Pepper, and there was usually one track per album, and by this point, it was multiple tracks. However, beneath the veneer of this old-timey musical track, it's actually quite a complex composition with lots of non-traditional musical ideas, including odd section lengths and a bridge that isn't the same the second time it is used. Like I said, it's mostly a, a solo effort. And it is very starkly contrasted to both the song before it and many of the songs before, if not all of them, but also the song after it, which was, again, a thing that they were doing all the time now. And that next track is I'm So Tired by John Lennon. Features quite calm and sort of sedate and almost sleepy mild ver verses, and then a loud manic chorus showing off maybe as well as anything they ever did. The Beatles' great sense of dynamics. It has a bunch of samples thrown into the mix, and the recording is actually quite dense because of those samples. I mean, I think it's safe to say that John Lennon was this is perhaps John Lennon's like last great gasp as a as a Beatles songwriter, given. Um, his relative lack of contributions to the last two Beatles records. 
you know, I think it, it really does show off why he's one of the great songwriters of his era, the, the songs as a whole, but, um, you know, a lot, cause a lot of the filler is courtesy of McCartney. And I think it shows that he's sort of amalgamating his two very, his, his sort of older, more traditional songwriting of the early part of their career with the more extreme weird stuff he was doing uh, later. You know, this is a song that is relatively simple as a rock song, but then it has like all sorts of weird shit going on in the background that's incorporated into this like more traditional and accessible song. And then because it's the white album, the next track is Blackbird. Singing in the dead of night. A solo acoustic number by Paul McCartney that is one of the most famous songs here now. Even though it wasn't initially, it is one of the most covered songs on the Beatles catalog, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with I'm So Tired or the track after it in terms of music. It is musically at least partially inspired by Bach, apparently. It is, uh, though I don't know which Bach piece, I've never been able to figure that out. It was supposedly vaguely about the social unrest in the United States in 1968, but I don't really know how it would be. I think it's just mostly appealing because it it sounds very simple. I've heard many good established rock music musicians who are good guitar players say it's actually quite hard to play. I've never tried. I actually, in the recent like 80 songs for Paul McCartney's 80th birthday that uh, Stereo Gum did, I actually heard one of the people talk. Many, many people chose Blackbird as their favorite Paul McCartney song, interestingly. And one of the people did said it's like, how, how does the basis for the Beatles write something that's this hard to play? And it's because, of course, he wasn't actually a bassist. He was a guitarist, moonlighting as a bassist, but also he's just a really talented musician. It is, of course, much more upbeat than a lot of the stuff on here, which is another reason why I think it's become one of the most famous songs on the record, even though it was never released as a single and honestly like hasn't been included on like Beatles greatest hits compilations or anything. It's just become known. So next we have the uh, second Harrison track piggies. Another pseudo-children's song featuring lyrics about animals and accompanying animal noises. It is supposedly really about class or the police. I'm not sure which, but both interpretations exist. Bungalow Bill, of course, the previous sort of children's song has an actual story. This is more just critical of somebody, whether it's rich people or the cops, I'm not sure which. It is hardly one of George Harrison's best songs. However, it is really interesting musically. I think lyrically, it's kind of inane. Musically, it's kind of uh, nutty. In the in the bridge, for example, there is a harpsichord on this track and, and is also featured in the bridge. And there's also a string section. And they basically play the blues in the bridge, which is just a very Beatles thing to do. Just like, let's find us some classical instruments and, and write some blues for them. Have fun. The next track is another one of Paul McCartney's favorite known famous songs from this record. And it is not for once, it is not a uh, one man band thing. It's actually members of the band are on it though. George Harrison is not really given much to do for some reason. And that is Rocky raccoon. Now somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota, there lived a young boy named Rocky raccoon. Uh, and one day his woman ran off with another guy. Hit young Rocky in the eye. Rocky didn't like that. He said, I'm gonna get that boy. 
So one day he walked into town, booked himself a room. This time it's more of a parody of uh, folk and or country and Western music, as they would say back then, than the Beach Boys. It's very much just a parody of, you know, sort of like story songs of the American kind. Um, but it has become a bit of a classic as well. And you could argue it's one of Paul McCartney's best story songs ever, which, of course, makes the fact that it's a parody sort of obscure, which is, I think, something that Paul McCartney has a special gift for, especially at this point, that he could like skewer people, but also like write a good enough song that no one realized that's what he was doing. Because it is uh, a super fun song. It is a super fun song. It, it's definitely probably one of my favorite Beatles songs, yeah. oddly enough. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's just so much fun. Have you ever heard the anthology version? Probably. So, Probably, because I know, I know, I listened to a bunch of stuff in university. Yeah. So one of the things you hear from the anthology demo is he actually was constantly changing the lyrics. He couldn't agree, like he could never settle on them. So in the um, in the anthology demo, which is only one of the many versions they did, because the anthology has a very actually, despite it being you know six CDs long, has an actually limited number of th- of their uh, recordings. Um, he actually it's it's quite different. And he, uh, they're sort of more clearly like jokey in the anthology demo version. And, um, you know, I think the best parodies are sort of the ones where people aren't always sure it's parody. And I think that's very true here. And I think it just, it, like you said, it's fun. Um, and it works quite well. But yeah, I would say if you haven't, if you haven't heard the anthology version, it's, it's neat to check out because it's, um, they sort of screw up a little bit, but they have a good time doing it. And now we come to, for some people, one of the nadirs of their catalog, and other people not, depending on, I guess, your opinion, the first ever solo composition by Ringo Starr or Richard Sarkey. It, again, features not the whole band. It only features Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and someone named Jack Fallon, who is playing the violin. Or fiddle, it would be called here, actually. Like I said, it's his debut as a solo composer, and we can tell he knew only three chords like on the piano, and this, I believe, is two chords. I think you could say it's the worst thing on the album. Some people don't agree. Some people really like Don't Pass Me By. I, I, okay, it features some really inspired uh, fiddle playing, but I don't know if there's anything else good about it. It was actually written in 1963 or 1964, but the Beatles had rejected it for every previous album. <laughs> uh, they used to ask apparently they used to ask Ringo Starr uh, if he'd ever written a song and he would just launch into this one that's what I heard John Lennon say during an interview or something I read and uh, <laughs> it had been around for a long time and uh, it's interesting uh, you know because on the one hand you might think oh the Beatles are really throwing the kitchen throwing everything at the wall and like just releasing anything but actually a bunch of white album outtakes made it onto uh, Abbey Road uh, maybe it onto George Harrison's All Things Must Pass and made it on to uh, McCartney, uh, Paul McCartney's first proper solo album. So uh, they didn't actually, they weren't actually recording literally everything. It feels like when you listen to this. I would point out that uh, Ringo Starr did a much better job on his next songwriting opportunity. However, uh, as I mentioned before, I have since learned that he might have had some help. Anyway, the next track is Paul McCartney's Why Don't We Do It in the Road. Which is once again almost a one-man band performance by Paul McCartney. The only other Beatle on it is Ringo Starr, who plays drums and claps his hands. 
everything else on the song is Paul McCartney. It is a parody of blues songs and is also legendarily inspired by watching monkeys have sex in India, which is exactly why it's called Why Don't We Do It in the Road? Because that's literally, he just was watching monkeys have sex on a road and was like, okay, I'm going to write a Yeah, I'm going to write a song about it. If you ever want to really hear Paul McCartney, like really, really go crazy as a vocalist, check out the demo version of this on Anthology. The song's much slower and he really shows off his voice. To me, the arrangement of this is the best part as much as it is a parody of the blues. It's, it's, it's really well done. I mean, it is filler, but it's well done filler. And uh, in fact, weirdly, on that, that list from Stereo Gum, I keep mentioning of 80 songs for Paul McCartney's 8th birthday, one person chose it as his favorite Paul McCartney song, which I was like, well, that's an interesting choice. That is a hot take. But anyway, it's followed by another Paul McCartney song, I Will which is not a parody at all, but extremely earnest. I think it might have been written for Linda. George Harrison is not present on this one for some reason. Uh, he might have, this might have been around when he quit. It's, it was recorded in September, so that might have been when he quit. It has an unusual feature in that the bass line is actually not a bass guitar, but instead is Paul McCartney pretending to be a bass guitar with his voice and uh you know which is another again you know another part of the case that paul mccartney was the best rock singer of his era it also uh shows that paul mccartney can still write ballads even though he was not writing ballads earlier in this record because of course we have you know well i guess blackbird's ballad but um you know everything else on it was sort of sillier or a parody for some reason i will it's just not that well known but i i think it's uh one of his the best songs of his here Weirdly, Blackbird and Rocky Raccoon are way more famous now than this is. But it's, I think it's one of its better songs on the record. And it's paired with a sort of equally somber John Lennon track, which is all a solo performance. And that's Julia. And it's one of his most personal songs. It's about his mother, who died when he was 17. Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you, Julia and you could argue in that way, it's a little bit of a preview of his solo album, Plastic Ono Band, which was his first non-music uh, concrete solo album. Apparently, Yoko Ono was involved in writing the lyrics, uh, though that's not officially credited because the Beatles, uh, you know, didn't do that. It is one of the simplest recordings on the album, along with Blackbird. The only th- it's it's guitar and vocals, and they're double tracked, and that's so there is some studio trickery, but it's literally just double track guitar, double track lead vocals. And that's how the first half of the album ends on these two rather quiet folk songs from Paul McCartney and John Lennon, which you could argue were completely at odds with most of what the Beatles had been doing, not just earlier on the record, but of course, especially what they've been doing since Revolver. The second half of the album opens with the one and only Paul McCartney, John Lennon writing collaboration on the whole album and one of the, possibly the, one of the last ones they ever did but also certainly the first one they'd done in a long time that didn't involve stitching two ideas together that had separately. And that is everyone's favorite Earth Day. It is another one of the pseudo-children songs scattered throughout the album and is, of course, become the song that they play at many stadiums when someone is celebrating a birthday or they're announcing the list of people celebrating a birthday. Certainly they do it at Skydome. 
it is a hard rock and roll song though and uh that's uh i mean sort of belies it's silly silly lyrics supposedly john lennon's contribution was mostly the lyrics or maybe a little bit of the melody but uh of course mccartney and lennon constantly differed about that when they were remembering things i it does feature some of paul mccartney's best singing in a rock and roll song a traditional rock and roll song it also is one of their more famous riffs which is weird given that it's you know a stupid birthday song it has an extended drum break uh, highly unusual for the beatles it also has weird studio trickery they ran instruments through various speakers and amps they weren't intended for and there's some weird noises happening in the background you know they were they deliberately wrote it uh for the purpose that it is since serve they actually did this completely knowingly that it was going to become they figured if they wrote a song about birthdays that it would probably get played and uh you know they were right but then they went and buried it in the middle of their longest album which is like a weird thing but i guess they were so big that that's they knew they could do that stuff it is followed by another loud rock song but a loud blues song this time uh and one of i think one of the highlights of the record which is your blues that's your spelled y-e-r a live and studio performance again much like um i think i think happiness is a warm gun is and is a confessional song about suicide i don't really know how serious the thoughts of suicide were but is of course also a parody of the british blues scene apparently they the lyrics are are supposedly serious i don't know how serious they actually are but it's worth noting that everything else about it is a bit of a parody it's possible that Lennon was thinking of Cream or uh, Fleetwood Mac, who was actually a fan of Fleetwood Mac, if you don't know, were a British blues band before they became the band that you know of. In the 60s, they were a British blues band, not, not rumors. My favorite parts of this are when John Lennon and George Harrison play guitar solos, which go absolutely nowhere and last as long as any Beatles guitar solos had up to that point. I think that is an absolutely wonderful example of musical humor. I love it. It still makes me giggle. I've heard it a million times and I still uh I still enjoy uh how how silly the guitar solos are. It was also notably recorded in a tiny little room next to the booth and not actually in the recording studio proper, which helps make the sound a little weird. I love your blues. I know it's a deep cut, but and then because it's the white album, the next track is Mother Nature's Son, a folk song from Paul McCartney <laughs> with horns, because why not? Beside a mountain stream, see waters rise. It is a solo effort in terms of the rock instruments or folk instruments, I guess, really. This time, again, from Paul McCartney, featuring him on the timpani, among other things. It's uh, earnest this time rather than a parody. It is apparently inspired by a spiritual lecture he heard in India. I mean, it's certainly pleasant. And I think the the brass arrangement is kind of pleasant too. It's it's certainly muted and and subtle and and pleasant is I think the best word for it. I am not a huge fan of as you can probably tell, but it is once again a just great illustration of that Paul McCartney can just toss it off whenever he wanted super catchy stuff that you know you know he's just very good at that stuff. And then 
because it's the white album they go right back to loud rock music with everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey by john lennon of course a far cry from mother nature's son it is one of the most manic songs the beatles ever recorded it features a spoken song lyrics and it also features all four band members overdubbing percussion on top of what is otherwise a live in the studio performance apparently the lyrics are about how weird it was for john lennon to be in love at a time that everyone was worried about yoko ono like making him crazy and corrupting him but i've never actually heard that i've never really listened super hard to the lyrics because i enjoyed the performance so much it also changes time at the very end of the song just to screw with us the next track is also by lennon and it's sexy sadie sexy sadie what have you done you made a fool of everyone which uh actually had to be due to george harrison's pleading had to be changed as to what the actual title was it was written about the yogi that the Beatles spent time with in India. He had hit on um, a, one of the uh, women who were at the retreat. Lennon found out about this, and Lennon changed the name of the song because George Harrison was very upset that John Lennon was going to rip on this guy publicly, even though I'm sure he deserved it. George Harrison was not really a great judge of character, I, I suspect, uh, in that he was trying to defend a guy who was probably a creep. It is stately, it is slowly paced, it features, it, it is led by a piano instead of guitar. And no, they did run the piano through a weird speaker, and there's doo-wop vocals in the background. I think, I wish Lennon had had the courage of convictions to actually, I believe it's supposed to be Maharaji or something was the t- actual title. But regardless, it is a complete musical left turn from everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. And uh, it is, I think... A pretty good song from him. And then left turn again because it's the White Album to Helter Skelter. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Where I stop and I turn and I go for a ride. Till I get to the bottom and I see you again. Arguably, Sexy Sadie really doesn't prepare you for Helter Skelter. The loudest and most violent rock song the Beatles ever recorded. It was written by Paul McCartney, of all people. Which, of course, if you've been listening to this, you understand that Paul McCartney did like loud rock music, but like, I think he has a reputation that suggests otherwise. I think it shows just how varied he could be and demonstrates his command of lots of different styles of music. And certainly, I'm, I, it took me a really long time to come around to the fact that he was really this t- capable and diverse because I was, he was, he's never been my favorite Beatle, especially when I was younger. The song started off as a ridiculously long jam. In fact, one take was apparently almost half an hour. And with Paul McCartney just making up the lyrics, which is, you know, I mean, the lyrics, you don't listen to Helder Skelter for the lyrics. Paul McCartney was encouraged to write the song by The Who, because apparently in an interview, Pete Townsend had described I Can See for Miles as loud, raw, and dirty. And Paul McCartney thought essentially bullshit and decided to outdo them. And I would say, if you have any doubts, listen to I Can See for Miles and then listen to Helter Skelter. I kind of agree with Paul McCartney on that one. I do think the Who were louder in concert. Well, for one thing, they were in concert in 1968 and the Beatles weren't. I generally think the Who were a far louder band, but I think in particular, I Can See for Miles is not. 
super, super aggressively loud rock song. The Helder Skelter features all sorts of noises and other tricks. There's multiple false endings. The guitar playing is loud and fast and aggressive and as close to metal as anything in 1968 really got, which, of course, it was just being invented at the time. Once again, I say listen to this and tell me the Beatles were a pop band. Also, infamously, it told Charles Manson that he had to kill everybody or something. I forgot about that. Yeah. I, I don't remember exactly what he says he told them to do, but it told them like the race war was coming or I don't know, something like that. Of course, if you listen to Helter Skelter, you, you know that that's just a really great interpretation of lyrics about going up and down a slide because they are really inane lyrics. The song is, you know, this is not a song you listen to it for its lyrics. Again, complete, complete left turn to the next track, which is one of George Harrison's best songs he ever wrote for the Beatles, Long, 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 and un- one of the most underknown tracks on the White Album, I would say. So many does not feature John Lennon for some reason. I would say, you know, this is a constant of the White Album, just rapid contrast, especially in terms of volume from song to song. It is, you know, a weird place to put this song, and I don't know why, particularly because it is, like I said, one of Harrison's best songs. It features an almost wall of sound behind it, despite the fact that there's only, like, seven instruments or something. It's, it, it's a really... In addition to being a good song, I think it's also a marvel of the Beatles production because, you know, it features a couple of guitars from George Harrison. It features a Hammond organ that was altered, a bass guitar, drums, and piano, and that's it. And the sound is just immense. It is arguably trying to imitate a little bit uh, Phil Spector-type production, though, of course, it's on a folk song. So, But yeah, I think it's arguably among his very best songs for the Beatles. But of course, because it's the 24th track on the White Album, not a lot of people have heard it. It's followed by Revolution Number no. One. The first version of Revolution, the one that didn't get turned into B-side, uh, also obviously a John Lennon song. It is a lot slower and less lo-fi than the original, or sorry, than the B-side, which is not the original, but the, the one that everyone knows. It's a blues song, slightly rocked up with doo-wop vocals, which is rather weird, and quite different from uh, Revolution, the B-side. In fact, if you've never heard Revolution number one, I would suggest checking out because it is significantly different. It features a trombone-heavy brass arrangement. It is the only time the Beatles had released multiple versions of the same song outside of Love Me Do, but the difference with Love Me Do is of course that it was they were trying not to let you know they were releasing different versions of the same song. Whereas this, they were very much trying to let you know they were releasing different versions of the same song. Now, of course, when anthology the anthology came out in the 90s, we learned that they did this all the time. They recorded many different versions of songs, sometimes faster, slower, changing the arrangements, and then they settled on something. Nobody knew that at the time. This was the first indication that they were radi- constantly changing, even sometimes genre for particular songs because you know especially in their in their studio focused era they just had the time and interest mm-hmm. to do it this revolution fades out at the end because it was there was a really long jam afterwards again for like 25 minutes or something but of course that jam 
morphed into something else entirely, which we will get to in a minute. Foreshadowing. The real honey pie, not wild honey pie, regular honey pie is the next track. And this is actually a full band performance. Uh, imagine that, a Paul McCartney song performed by the whole band. It's, uh, like I said, it's totally unrelated to Wild Honey Pie. It's a McCartney music hall number. And like I said, it's notable for featuring the rest of the Beatles on it. It features a surprisingly tasteful jazz guitar solo from John Lennon, which is weird. It also, of course, features an, a pretty impressive uh, vocal from Paul McCartney. If you can get over the fact you're listening to like one of a musical in 1968, if you think of it as a parody, you, you probably like it more. But Paul McCartney's voice is, of course, super, super high in this and just quite impressive. I don't love it, but I do appreciate you know the, the tastefulness of it, I guess. The next track is Sad by Truffle, the last of the George Harrison songs. It is a rather silly song about a chocolate addiction leading to losing your teeth. But it features a neat low-end sax section that is distorted super, super, like a lot, so that you can't actually hear that they're playing very well. Apparently, George Harrison had a fight for this sound. Like, nobody wanted to give it to him. They, they thought it was like a bad idea, but it's a distinct, distinct sound. I'd say it, it's certainly not as good as Long, Long, Long or While My Guitar Gently Beeps. It's probably better than Piggies. It does have a changing bass line, which is a common Beatles touch, which is kind of neat. It also uh, contains the most referen- self-referential moment in their catalog. It actually refers to Obladi which is a song on the same record. So clearly Obladi Oblada was recorded first. I don't know why it mentions it, but it does. The next track, uh, the third last track on the record, we're getting there, is actually two tracks. Uh, the first is Cry Baby Cry, a John Lennon song. And then the second is something that doesn't have a name that I'm going to call Can You Take Me Back, which is a, a fragment that is tacked on to the end of it. Cry Baby Cry is a sort of folk pop song with pseudo lullaby lyrics and can you take me back is just paul mccartney vamping on a phrase for a minute and it's filler it was improvised by paul mccartney during the recording of i will but of course it sounds nothing like wild honey pie which is the other piece notable piece of filler here but it it is you know again filler being used as a segue so i just want to stop for a second and uh play something briefly I would just like to note that Love Me Do, the Beatles' first single, came out six years prior to the White Album. Six years. That's it? Six years. Six years. This, so think about Eventually how far, I'll stop being surprised by that, but... Yeah. Think how far we've come. The next track on the White Album is the Beatles' most infamous track, parodied on The Simpsons, and just very, very weird. Number nine... 
Number nine, 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 number nine. That is, of course, Revolution Number 9, and I would say that nothing in the Beatles catalog could have possibly prepared anybody for that, and arguably nothing outside of maybe Frank Zappa's music uh, could have prepared anybody listening to popular music for that track. Certainly not Can You Take Me Back or uh, Cry Baby Cry, which was what led into it. It is the longest piece in the Beatles songbook. I don't know you can call it a song. It is unlike anything else they released. Of course, I mentioned Carnival of Light earlier. Paul McCartney had created something called Carnival of Light in January 1967. I do not know what it sounds like. It is apparently the closest thing. It was never released. It has never been released, so nobody knows. It's also notable that John Lennon had been putting out, well, was making similar music with Yoko Ono, who was involved in this as well at the time. I can't remember when the first of those was released. I think actually the first one was released maybe a week or two later from this, but they would put out like three albums of this kind of music, but like they put it out as John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And also, so it didn't get around as much, but I'm pretty sure this came out first. The average popular music fan of 1968 was not aware of this style of music. And so this would have been a real shock. And of course in the CD era, it causes most people to skip it. And I guess also in the, you know, post CD era in the streaming era, I doubt anyone sits around and listens to Revolution Number Nine. It originated, as I said, as an extremely extended coda to Revolution Number One. John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and George Harrison compiled tape loops of that jam. They grabbed sounds from various things. They uh, recorded their own voices. They found samples of other people's voices, and they also grabbed some classical music performances from the radio. And they assembled it together to create this. So what is it? Well, as we briefly talked about at the beginning of this podcast, during the two decades since World War II, modern European composers had been experimenting with tape loops. First, it was just tape loops of conventional instruments, and then eventually it was tape of any sound. Now, when I say a tape loop, I mean a little bit of tape, and then they would chop it and then repeat it. Take that, copy it, and repeat it over and over and over again, and increase and decrease the volume and do other things with it. The most normal among these composers in terms of influence on the Beatles were Karl Heinz Stockhausen and Edgar Varese. This style of music, as I've mentioned previously in this podcast, is called music concrete. And it already influenced the Beatles to a great degree on Tomorrow Never Knows and I Am the Walrus, and of course on Carnival of Light, I assume. But of course, Revolution Number no. 9 had a little precedent um, and even today, I think, shocks some people, and as I noted, mostly into not listening to it. All I can say is this, whether you've ever listened to it or not, and regardless of your definition of music, whether it fits into it or not, the band that recorded and released Love Me Do in the fall of 1962 recorded and released this six years later. I know I just said that, but I have to emphasize it again. It's been six years, and they've gone from Love Me Do to wannabe high art music. Now, I'm not going to claim for a second that this is on par with Varese, who I know, or Stockhausen, who I really don't. 
but the Beatles were the only pop rock musicians in the world, aside from Frank Zappa and the Velvet Underground, to be paying any attention whatsoever to the post-war avant-garde of classical music. And unlike Frank Zappa and the Velvet Underground, who had People small... Beatles? And mu- Sorry? People actually listened to the Beatles? Yes, exactly. People listened to the Beatles. All I would say is, like, imagine this impact on, like, a seven-year-old, 17-year-old kid expecting rock music, especially one who already played an instrument, much like I mentioned at the beginning of this thing about the White Album, my little rant about the White Album. It's like reading Nietzsche. Once you've listened to this, anything is possible. You know, there's there are no more boundaries after it, it, in the world of uh, popular music once you listen to Revolution Number no. Nine, and so because it's the White Album, in order to finish the album, they they go from that to a lullaby. I just yeah, that was really my, weird. Yeah, I threw my hands up in the air. The last song on the record is "Good Night," a lullaby written for Alan's son uh, Julian. It is the most traditional sounding thing on the entire album, and completely out of character with everything else, especially the track that leads into it, and notably everything else John Lennon has been writing. The orchestration is terribly cheesy. I think it's actually deliberately cheesy. Some people suggest it as a deliberate attempt to make fun of Paul McCartney trying to make them into performing characters on Magical Mystery Tour. I don't know if that's true. That might be reading in too much to it. Because, of course, John Lennon couldn't write music, so how he would have communicated that to George Martin without getting in trouble with Paul McCartney, I don't know. Anyway, that's a rumor. There's, of course, a theory that has been bubbling around all Beatles albums from Sgt. Pepper on that this was somehow a concert and this is their walk-off number. I think that stuff is kind of dumb. Anyway. It's it's definitely one of the worst things here. You know, it's also very typical of the record in that they just did that and were like, so what? Or like, you know, deal with it. The Beatles recorded way more than the 30 songs listed here. They did not release a lot of them. Some of these outtakes would find their way onto later Beatles albums, but mostly they would emerge on their solo albums in the 70s. And in the case of one of Harrison's songs, the 80s, they had so much music <laughs> that it helped prop them along. It helped create a triple album from George Harrison, and it also propped them along well into the next decade. So they were really, despite not getting along with each other, they were really, really prolific at this point in time. So just just to try to give us a sense of what this was, we started off with a parody of rock and roll and surf music. We then went to folk rock. We then went to more traditional mainstream rock music. We then went to ska mixed with pop. We then went to what you might call psych folk. We then went to a, a sing-along song that I guess you could maybe describe as psychedelic. And then we went to a straight-ahead rock song. We then went to what you might call art rock or prog rock, depending on your definition, but certainly arty version of rock and roll. We then went to music hall. We went back to rock music. Then we went to Baroque folk. Then we went to Baroque pop. Then we went to country. Then we went to country rock. Then to blues rock. Then to uh, singer-songwriter folk twice in a row then to a rock and roll sing-along novelty track, then to a British blues parody, then to folk pop, then to hard rock heavy metal, or sorry, no, hard rock, I'm getting ahead of myself, then to psychedelic pop, then to hard rock heavy metal, then to Brill Building pop, which is a Amer- traditional American pop, then blues rock, then jazz pop, then psychedelic blues rock, then Baroque folk pop with traditional folk detached on the end, then music concrete, and then a lullaby. 
So that's as something. one does. Yeah, as one does. As one does. Now, that might seem relatively tame for the genre hopping that we are used to in the 21st century, but we are talking about the autumn of 1968, and I would challenge anyone who thinks that this is normal for 1968 to go looking for it because I'm not I I know of absolutely nothing. Yeah. They invented the kitchen sink double album with this as we talked about at the beginning after its release numerous other bands would attempt to do everything in this manner. Uh no one had ever tried this before. We become in some ways the standard for other bands to try and measure themselves by. And that's true of much of their work but particularly true of the white album and I just want to read a quote by uh, someone from Slate from 2004, which I think really sums up what's so great about the White Album. The album reveals the popping seams of a band that had the pressure of an entire fissuring generational political gap on its back. Maybe it's because it shows the Beatles at the point where even their music couldn't hide the underlying tensions between John, Paul, George, and Ringo, or maybe because it was coincidentally released at the tail end of a year anyone could agree was the embittered honeymoon's end for the love generation the year that when to borrow from a famous yates boom the center decidedly could not hold for whatever reason the beatles is still one of the few albums by the fab four that resists reflexive canonization which along with society's continued fragmentation keeps the album fresh and surprising so i that has always resonated with me but I think the comment I made earlier about Love Me Do versus Revolution Number no. 9 is true of so very much of the work from 1965 on. Can anyone really conceive of how far they had come in only six years? They had gone from being a relatively unique rock and roll band, but still just a rock and roll band with a prominent harmonica player to making avant-garde classical music and many, many other genres. And it had been only six years. In my opinion, it's flabbergasting. So that is my spiel about my favorite Beatles album. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely been a surprising journey for me i guess because like growing up you're so far removed from the time where this wasn't even like saying like six years between these two albums yeah or between that single this album that is absolutely mind-blowing to me that 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 they've had that kind of a just a galactic shift in what they were doing is uh yeah that's something to talk about. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that, like you said, you're absolutely right. It's really hard to feel that on any kind of level, resonating level when you're, you know, you live, you grew up at a, a time when like, first of all, the Beatles are just established, but also just like, you know, you weren't there. So it's hard to really conceive of how short a period of time that is for them to go from singing silly songs about love and dancing to like these massive, you know, concept albums and yeah yeah with just like, like genre bending at a time where you didn't genre bend yeah yeah and like elaborate Avant-garde production and, yeah yeah on some songs and then really simple other songs and just like and jumping around genre genre, genre and then like you know when they are experimenting in the studio doing like cutting edge things and and just yeah i mean it's just it still blows my mind and i i you know wrote a book about it 10 years ago <laughs> um i just i i'm i'm this is one of the reasons i think i have a strong case here is because it's just like music not just the beatles but music changed so much from the fall of 1962 to when they broke up in may 1970 like it's unrecognizable between those two times and their evolution is the best way to show that i think you know in terms of how drastic music changed because they changed so much and their music changed so much. And you can really, really hear it when you like go back and listen to Love Me Do. And you're like, wait, this is the same band? 
How is that even possible? Let alone, how is it possible? It took them six years to change. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a, like a good contemporary example where someone's had, has managed to continually shift what, like what kind of musician they are. Yeah. But managed to do that while still remaining top of the charts. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were, because they were, consistently a powerhouse oh yeah yeah. i mean this 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 record all their records from when they first started releasing capital records in the u.s went to number one in the states and all the records went to number one in the uk once they had a number one of course the first album was released before there was one chart there was when there was four charts but they were hugely popular they didn't have like commercial down periods except for we're going to talk about yellow submarine in a bit and like that one is a bit outlier, but it's partly because it wasn't actually a Beatles album. So on the whole, every you know, they constantly released music that everyone listened to. And at the same time, they innovated and, and experimented and grew. Yeah, absolutely. And challenged. Yeah. Yeah. And just never and never really stopped. Even even when we talk about their last two records, real records, um, you know, it's it's they were still trying to do di- things differently, even even when they abandoned most of their uh, innovation, which they would really, that's what we're talking about next, basically, is yeah. they're dropping everything, going away from the studio, or trying to, and trying and failing to. Yeah, so uh, anyway, that's what we'll be hitting on next, is uh, is them trying to take this even further away from psychedelia to something much more traditional. <laughs> <laughs>